Hello and welcome once again to the Nutmeg Podcast, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in personal finance and financial services to tackle the topics that can help inspire you to feel financially confident, investment savvy and empowered to reach your goals. I'm Gary Shepherd from Nutmeg and I'm thrilled today to be joined in the studio by not one but two esteemed guests. Chuka Amuna, Managing Director and Head of EMEA ESG at JP Morgan, and James McManus, Chief Investment Officer also here at Nutmeg. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a theme that's omnipresent today, it seems, within the world of personal finance. That is environmental, social, and corporate governance, the acronym being ESG. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be with you. Good morning. Thank you. Um, so I think what we're really talking about here is, is companies not only looking to make money, uh, but also keeping in touch with the values we hold individually and, and recognising their impact on society and the environment uh, a company might operate in. Uh, James, as, as a professional investor, I, I think you're better placed than me to perhaps give some examples of, of what we mean here. Yeah, absolutely. So ESG refers to the broad section of considerations that investors, consumers and other stakeholders have under those three core areas, environmental, social and governance. And ESG is all about seeking to understand and measure behavior and activity under those three broad banners to form an assessment of risks and opportunities uh, that they present. And I, I think there are lots of examples of listed companies that have made big commitments to change. You know, Well-publicized examples might be Microsoft's commitment to carbon neutral by 2030 or Nike's corporate social responsibility efforts that include diversity and inclusion, community support, and sustainability programs. But ESG is much more holistic than commitments to just one aspect of a company's activity. Now, the nature of businesses and how they engage with their customers, their employees, and in fact, their wider communities has always been of concern, particularly for us as investors. But the past decade in particular has seen investors become much more engaged in assessing the long-term risks and opportunities that are going to present themselves from how a company or a government operates within its society and its environment. Great. I think we'll drill down into some of these definitions and, and also examples of companies' efforts uh, shortly. Uh, and I also reflect, think we'll um, be reflecting on 2022 as another momentous year for socially responsible investing. Uh, I think this is particularly relevant with COP27 in Egypt and the focus around energy supply, given the situation in Ukraine. Um, but before we do, I'd like to welcome Chukka to the podcast. Chukka. Uh, many of our listeners will know your name from the world of politics, uh, where for a decade uh, you were influential as Shadow Business Secretary and a member of the Treasury Select Committee. Um, can you talk us through how you ended up at JP Morgan and perhaps explain your <laughs> current role? Well, um, uh, I my current role uh, as the Managing Director and, and, and Head of EMEA, we call it, yeah, Europe, the Middle East and Africa, um, uh, the ESG investment banking practice. Um, essentially, what we do, uh, the team that I lead within the corporate and investment bank at JP Morgan, is advise companies, I suppose, on two things. The first is how to integrate environmental, social and governance issues into the management of their business and to meet the demands of investors and wider stakeholders. Um, as James just said, this is, you know, a big issue now in the market. Um, and also in so doing, help them to access ESG and sustainable focus capital, uh, be it in the private market, the public market, um, and whether it's debt or equity or other instruments. Um, and so that's what we assist our clients in doing 
in a very changed world. Uh, I also oversee what we call our green economy client coverage. So we think about who is going to be to the green industrial revolution, what Uber, Facebook, Salesforce and so forth were to the tech revolution and how can we support and assist them. Why do we want to do that? Essentially because, uh, first of all, our clients fall into that bucket. We need to make sure that they can raise the finance that they need. But we also have, a, I suppose, a, a, a kind of big strategic mission, which is to uh, finance and facilitate $2.5 trillion um, up until 2030 from 2021 to help deliver the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And a trillion of that is is very much looking towards financing climate solutions. So it's not only that, of course, we want to provide the very best service there is on the street to our clients, but actually we've got that broader goal as well. And that goes to why I, I chose to switch in a way. Um, you know, you go into politics because, well, I hope most people do, because they want to change the world. And one of the things I came to realise during my time in Parliament, and I was a member of the UK Parliament from 2010 to and 2019, is that the role of the nation state has become reduced in a way, quite emasculated in the face of global forces. And so actually your capacity to change the world and move the needle in politics, I think, is not what it was. And also, particularly during my time as a shadow business secretary, you really come to appreciate the way in which actually finance, when directed in the right way, can move the needle. And uh, I joined Parliament in the wake of the global financial crash when we were thinking about capitalism and what variety of capitalism is most efficient, fair and inclusive. And it seemed to me that we needed to adopt a different model. Uh, and you can only really partly do that and promote that goal uh, with the kind of levers available to you as a legislator and as a parliamentarian, and if you're lucky enough, somebody in government. But actually, the other side of the, the coin is what you do in the private sector and in finance. And, and JP Morgan is the biggest bank by market cap in the world. So in a way, I see what I'm doing at the bank for our clients as a continuation of that overall mission, but in a different context. Mm. And, and that platform uh, JP Morgan has obviously has some perks. Um, you did get to go to um, COP27 in Egypt uh, last year. I'd love to hear about that experience. Um, what were your key takeaways? And also I'd like to ask um, about the energy transition agenda. Um, is it accelerating as many predicted in the aftermath of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine? So a few issues there. What was it like to be at COP27? It's this strange mixture of, I would describe, uh, a kind of cross between a international trade fair, a big important global diplomatic summit, and a party political conference, all wrapped into one. And it's a slightly odd, uh, you feel a bit like you're on the Truman Show in a way. It's this kind of, kind of cocooned, zoned, gated, enormous area with lots of people from all over the world. It, it does feel very exciting. Um, but, but I think what we are now seeing with the COPs is that they happen over a two-week period. The first is very much a networking event where all of those people in the private sector, the public sector, in the NGO space come together and talk about how are we going to avert a climate catastrophe. Uh, and that 
in and of itself is important because that doesn't happen uh, very often throughout the year. And it's a great convener in that sense. And you do learn stuff and you pick up very efficiently because it's not like you're having lots of long meetings with people. You have snatched conversations, 20-minute meetings here and there. But that in and of itself, I think, is a very useful thing. But of course, the most important thing that happens is in the second week when you have the negotiation of a, a real agreement. And I think our view of, of, of COP last year was that it wasn't a disaster, but it certainly wasn't a success. It was very much a EM, emerging markets focused COP. It was happening in Egypt, in Africa. Uh, and I think this issue of the extent to which the developing world, uh, well, the extent to which the developed world funds the developing world's transition and adaptation to the damage already done to the climate climate is is absolutely vital and crucial because our in the in the investment bank our energy team within our equity research group uh, is projecting through to 2030 that there is going to be a 20 percent delta between the demand for energy and the supply and that will come because in spite, and, th and this would be if in OECD countries, by the way, we achieve all our climate reduction, uh, our emissions reduction targets and energy use reduction that we envisage within that. Because in the developing world, as they grow and the GDP per capita goes up and energy consumption goes up, that's, you know, that whatever emissions reductions and reduced energy use we have in the OECD countries is going to be uh, offset by the growth and demand in the developing world. Mm -hmm. And I think for that, that just illustrates why you've got to work out how the developed world is in the end going to fund the developing world, uh, given that, you know, 65% of emissions now are coming from non-OECD countries. Uh, but historically, developed OECD countries have been the biggest contributors to using our, our, our carbon budget as our planet. So that was very much the focus last year. And uh, there wasn't a kind of any um, progress made towards the goal set at the 2009 COP of the developed world contributing $100 billion a year uh, to fund climate mitigation in the developing world, but what, what was agreed to, which I think very few people expected was going to be um, agreed to, was that there's to be the establishment of this loss and damage fund where essentially the developed world is going to pay for the developing world, help pay for the developing world to um, adjust to the, the damage that has already been done to, 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 the, to the climate. Now, admittedly, there wasn't an agreement on how big this fund will be, who's going to pay into it and who will benefit from it. That's to be determined um, uh, through negotiations from March of this year and hopefully will be settled before um, we get to Dubai in November when we're going to have COP28. But I think that for me was the kind of standout theme of last year's COP is, you know, how are we going to help fund the transition and adaptation of the developing world? So... For the for the uninitiated, how you you gave us a great description of of how COP felt there, but how how does it work in practice that second week? How do you have so many stakeholders, so many important people in one place, and bring them all together in the space of just a few days 
to try and make decisions and come to an agreement. How can you can you describe to us how that actually works in in practice for those of us that haven't uh, so, attended? So so usually in the lead in the uh, whoever holds the COP twenty well whatever it is the COP twenty eight as we look to Dubai presidency they will liaise with the different parties. It's, the COP stands for the Conference of the Parties, um, which I think, if, if, if I'm not incorrect, is like 198 different countries uh, uh, in, uh, across the world. Um, and the, it is the host country, the president, that will start to put together the outline of agreement and a draft test. That is then negotiated through the course of the two weeks and agreement is reached around a final text. Usually, I mean, these things are usually scheduled to finish on the Friday of the uh, second week. At COP26, it went into the Saturday. In COP27, it went into the Sunday morning. (laughs) Um, uh, And usually with each of the parties, each of the countries, they'll have a lead figure who heads the delegation uh, and will, uh, you know, have ultimate sign-off of the text uh, in, you know, liaising with the, the head of government of whatever the state is concerned. Usually that person will be uh, uh, an elected politician, um, and, and sometimes it can be the, the, the equivalent of the foreign minister of the country, sometimes it may be an economic portfolio holder. So, for example, take the UK Grant Shapps last year, was the person who was the senior figure determining, uh, you know, ultimately what happened uh, from a UK government point of view because Got it. all of the issues fell within his cabinet ministerial brief. Thank you. Um, maybe we can just expand on this commitment to payments from uh, developed nations to developing nations. Um, it's a significant issue, I think. and I'm really interested in how this helps address the challenges that less developed nations face in tackling climate change at, at, at a lower level of economic development. Are these the sort of trade-offs that, that Western governments will have to accept in order to get to that wider global warming target of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Chuka? I think that there are trade-offs to be made, but there are also huge benefits. Um, I, I think it's a shame how the transition is very often described as a burden and an involving sacrifice and being something that's unpleasant and will stop you leading a good life. Um, Whereas actually, it, you know, the, if we're successful in, in, in reconfiguring how society operates, it should actually be very positive. It should hopefully spur the creation of a lot of highly skilled, better paid jobs. And goodness knows we need to change the complexion of the workforce in terms of the roles available and the nature of them and how fulfilling they are. And, and then, of course, there, you know, if you look at, the need to transform our food system, which is a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. If we do that, it's not going to just be a question of reducing emissions and promoting sustainability. We'll actually live healthier lives. We'll we'll, we'll be more healthy if we're eating better food. So I actually think there's so much upside here. Um, And in in, in achieving those goals, what, what is beyond question, I think both if you're a nutmeg uh, customer and client, um, or a, a customer or client of J.P. Morgan full stop. I mean, financial services has a huge role to play in this. You investing your money in a particular way 
is going to help move the needle because the cost of the transition, um, you know, which are estimated to be anything between five and seven billion, sorry, five and seven trillion dollars a year every year between now and 2050, you can't meet the cost demand unless people using the Nutmeg platform and many others are deploying their monies accordingly and getting the capital to um, the climate solutions, which are hopefully going to avert a catastrophe. Because uh, it's quite clear, I mean, whatever emissions reductions we manage to achieve through changing the way that we live, that we're only going to be able to achieve the goal of keeping the temperature rise to substantially under 2 degrees C and hopefully uh, well, no more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels through the evolution and use of technology. Uh, and, you know, that's a, a real example of where you don't get the technological innovation unless these funky, green, innovative companies can access the finance that they need. So what, so what you just described there in terms of um, innovation should be really exciting to, to a lot of companies in, in a lot of sectors, actually. So what, what do you see as the sort of major differences in how corporates and governments are approaching some of these issues? And are they always pulling in the same direction or are there inherently some um, you know, different perspectives there despite aiming at the same long-term Goal. Well, one is a macro role in, the, in, in when you look at the government, and the other is more micro when you look at individual corporates. Um, they both have a role to play uh, in partnership together, um, not in isolation, in order for us to achieve the big global goals that we we, we have. Um, and so the focus and the the kind of angles vary. Um, Let's just look at one example, for example. Um, if we want to uh, evolve our energy usage uh, and to change the nature of the energy we use away from heavy carbon fossil fuels to lower carbon alternatives, then our view is that you're not going to get that without a price on carbon mm. um, to help um, make... Uh, not only alternative energy forms more cost competitive, but just to get the allocation of capital needed. Um, that isn't something that can be done in the private sector. That can only be done by governments. Now, the challenge that governments have, particularly in democracies, is that you, these are quite long-term goals, uh, which are kind of, in UK terms, multiple parliament activities. And so you do need a degree of political consensus um, so that goal, the pursuit of goals will subsist in spite of a change of government. Now, that's quite challenging when the transition itself can be a hot political potato when it comes to thinking about, well, who pays for the transition? So, you know, it's all very well, say, for government to say, we should all be moving away from having boilers in our homes to heat pumps, but to install a heat pump can cost, you know, more, way more than £10,000. 15 to 20,000 pounds, which is not something in the midst of a cost of living crisis and high inflation that many people can can, can wear right now. So th th I think that's a challenge for government. I think for um, companies, it's it's often about balancing the, the needs to deliver a return to your investors, uh, whilst at the same time investing in the business and making the capex uh, investments to, to reconfigure your business at the same time. 
So time, and that's, time that's is almost the greatest resource that companies could wish to in have. A way. It's time to be able to I know, create I, and, a strategy And that's most stark is when you look in the oil and gas sector. Um, you know, the likes of BP, Shell and so on are being expected to reconfigure their business. Um, they are facing, some would say, an existential challenge given the need for the world to move off much of what they produce now to something different. But they are also expect to continue delivering a return to their shareholders. Um, and in turn, the ultimate beneficiaries of that are people who need a pension. <laughs> so um, institutional investors often get ridden up as being a bunch of wealthy people. I mean, the, the bottom line is, in aggregate, they are investing a lot of money for a lot of people. Okay, uh, so many of our listeners will be familiar with ESG when it comes to its investment focus. Um, James, we, we briefly mentioned this earlier, but what does ESG actually mean for investors? Um, how does the criteria inform how we should be judging companies and, and also government policy? Well, at its heart, ESG in an investment sense is about ensuring that we incorporate non-financial factors into our decision making when we're investing. What, what does that mean? Well, put simply, it means we're not just focusing on how profitable a company is or whether its financial growth justifies its current share price. It's about recognizing the key issues that are going to affect that company from an environmental, social and governance perspective, and then forming a view as to how well positioned that company is to tackle those. So, for example, you know, if, is the company prepared for structural change? Is it taking too much risk on matters that might affect its ability to deliver profits to shareholders in the long term? Or versus its peers, is it at a disadvantage competitively because of the nature of its operations? Does it actually have a higher likelihood to succeed because it's ahead of its industry peers in considering its environmental or its social impact? But, but this approach is not new, right? No, you're right. Uh, many investors have, have long had a framework to incorporate non-financial factors into their investment analysis and, and the benefits of doing so are very well understood. For example, I think we can all understand on a, you know, a very simple basis that a company that rewards its staff fairly, invests in training, has a management team that's aligned to the success of the business, should be much better positioned to perform than one that doesn't have any of those attributes. So the application of this concept is not necessarily new. Uh, but it is of increasing importance to investors because of the structural changes that society faces from issues such as climate change and also the increasing detail and accuracy of the data insights that are available to us. You know, we should probably point out, though, at this point that investors' use of ESG frameworks is still deeply wedded to an investment lens. You know, that is that we're talking about managing financial risks and assessing the sustainable competitive advantage of businesses. You know, it's always going to focus on those issues that have a greater impact for a given company or a given sector. Uh, you know, for example, you know, environmental pollution for energy companies or, or data security for technology companies. This is less about whether a company is holistically a good actor in society, but rather how well it is managing those risks and how well it's positioned to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves from those environmental, social and governance uh, areas. That, that might sound less virtuous, and, and it is, but importantly, as Chuck has said, men uh, mentioned earlier, it, investors can wield significant influence over company behavior as shareholders, and in particular by changing what we call the cost of capital, you know, the cost that businesses incur to finance their operations. Now, as ESG becomes a more critical factor in investment decision-making, companies and governments will increasingly find that they face higher costs to finance their business, 
or, or their activity or vice versa for those businesses won't struggle to find investment if they're taking the right steps. Chuka, from your perspective, clearly company management is always accountable to its shareholders. Um, but do you see financial markets and investors as a major driver of change for company behaviour? Definitely. Definitely. Um, and one message I'd like to get across is the engagement by investors with uh, corporates issuing uh, equity or debt is it does make a difference. When I advise our clients with the, the broader team on, on what investors expect, if they're not match fit in terms of meeting the requirements and asks, then we work with them to change what they're doing. It isn't a marketing exercise. It's much more fundamental than that. Uh, and so you, you do see uh, companies responding to that and changing their strategies um, to, to, to meet demand. And what, what, when you're talking to companies, what's the, the issue they struggle with most from a sort of broad ESG perspective? Is it simply measuring what they're currently doing to begin with or, or is it about deciding what is going to have most impact and and where the opportunity or the trade-off uh, lies in in that sort of decision framework because clearly this needs to be a long-term thought process and and these types of changes can't always be delivered overnight so I think we've moved from a phase in the development of ESG investing and sustainable finance where the market was marking its own homework in, in, in many respects to one where we're in a much more regulated place. And I think, I think that's very welcome. Um, I think the lack of regulation and, and people adopting different definitions of things is in part what has led to some of the greenwashing controversies that we've seen over the, the last year or so. So I think more regulation is a good thing. But I think the challenge for many of our clients is that in spite of that, you do have different demands. There are a number of different global standards and frameworks. There isn't one necessarily that that is the um, the standard. And when you have a multinational business, that can be quite challenging. I think secondly, as these regulations are evolving, different regions are moving at different speeds. Um, you know, Europe is always going to be in the vanguard of these things because the stakeholder demand and the public policy requirements are greater. Uh, it's become a lot more politicized, this area in the US, which is probably going to stand in the way of that, you know, of the US getting to where Europe is as quickly as people may have thought. And then in APAC, it's just in, 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 in the emerging world in China, Asia, Pacific and so forth. I think it's a bit more... The, the tension comes between sustainability and, and growth and, and, and sustainable development. Um, and so the way these play, play out for, for companies, particularly when you're operating in all three of those big regions that I'm talking about, is, is, is quite challenging. Uh, probably if I was to be more specific, one example of, of a challenging issue is, is how to measure your scope three emissions the end-use emissions of, of those who are by using your products and services because it's not like you have control over them. Uh, so you're having to kind of estimate in a way what their likely use is going to be. And then there is an investor demand that not only you have scope three emissions targets, but that you disclose what those emissions are too. And that is very challenging. Yep. 
Can we discuss some of the differences in how investors and consumers might see ESG versus how the corporate world views what's required? Um, James, you mentioned earlier the very financially focused way in which the investment world typically considers ESG frameworks. Um, but check it. What has been your experiences with companies' trade-off between the demands of consumers versus investors? I don't actually think in many cases it's it's seen as a, as a big trade-off as such. That's partly because what we find with the consumer is that in surveys, consumers say one thing in terms of their demand for sustainable products and services and their preferences – but actually, the behavior doesn't always match right. the, the, the kind of way people like to think of themselves. I, I'll give you one example. Uh, we, in the Corporate Investment Bank, um, our, our ESG uh, team within our equity research group uh, looked at sustainable fashion and the extent to which people are prepared to pay more for a sustainable product. And... It's, it's not really proved out yet that people are prepared to sacrifice price and quality for sustainability when it comes to buying clothes. Um, Especially in a cost of living crisis. Exactly. Well. Now, if you've got an item which meets the cost um, requirement and the, the kind of quality and use requirement then the fact it's a sustainable product can move the needle in terms of the branding and the propensity of the consumer to purchase that product or service. But if you don't meet the baseline requirements for, for, for the use of the good or service, then the sustainability factor doesn't seem to make a difference. So I think, I think it's quite complex consumer behavior and demands around this but there's no doubt about it that i think for for companies they do see this as a way to differentiate themselves from other offers in the market um and for example you know our credentials at nutmeg uh, around sustainability and the different products we offer to our clients is we would argue i think james will agree is one of the differentiating factors of this platform um, and and there are others in other sectors who say the same about their products and services too. Yeah, and I think to add to, add to that, it actually sort of leads us on to one of what I think is probably one of the most critical discussion points around responsible investing approaches and and the way that you know financial markets think about ESG analysis, and that is all about materiality. So helping consumers understand the materiality of of the topics that we're talking about and how impactful they are in terms of driving an outcome. And and for an investment approach, you know, for a robust approach to be taken in, in the assessment of some of these ESG factors, we first have to understand which are most material. You know, to use an example from from earlier, you know, if we could ensure an energy company, for example, has best in class data security processes, but that's not gonna have that larger impact on their ESG profile, and it's certainly not going to have that bigger impact on their financial bottom line, given the nature of their operations. Environmental policies, however, would have the opposite uh, impact. And I, you know, I think put simply here, what matters is that not all factors are equal. There are some very well-established industry frameworks uh, that help guide us as investors, um, you know, with these materiality assessments. And I think that helps guide us to focus on what really matters and help educate consumers about what really matters in terms of driving a better overall outcome 
even if there are some trade-offs to make on the on the way through. But but no ESG decision is straightforward, and all decisions require a trade-off, right? Well, that that's right. And remember, this is about marrying financial and non-financial factors together. You know, this is a very different approach to just applying a say values-based lens where we're going to exclude certain investments based on our personal values. Um, you know, if I use an example, it's perfectly possible to reduce the carbon emissions of an investment portfolio, but still own some energy companies within that portfolio. Some investors may prefer not to do that. Our own socially responsible portfolios at Nutmeg screen out any companies that are involved in fossil fuel extraction and production, for example. But there are also reasons why you might want to consider retaining some exposure, diversification being principal among them. Now, if the end result in that scenario was a 50% reduction in, in carbon emissions and a limited loss of diversification, investors would then need to decide whether that inclusion of those energy companies as a small portion uh, of the remaining exposure was material to them from a values perspective. You know, whether they'd be willing to forego that uh, for the diversification benefit and, and remove them entirely. Uh, I think a, a really incredibly important topic um, that we're covering here is is how... Uh, companies can perhaps credibly be engaged with ESG issues. I mean, for example, uh, there are some sectors uh, such as tobacco or, or fossil fuel extraction where maybe it's more difficult for management to make credible commitments. Um, Chukka, do you, do you think that's the case? I, I don't think it's uh, if you're in a hard-to-abate, hard high-emitting sector, necessarily hard to make credible commitments. It's harder to make commitments per se because you're a high emitter. Um, but I always sound a note of caution when those in high emitting sectors are painted as the pariahs in the room, particularly fossil fuel companies, oil and gas companies, for example. I mean, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that 80% of our energy needs are still met by fossil fuels. We wish it weren't the case, but it is the case. And we don't have renewables and alternative energy sources at scale to be able to immediately replace the use of oil and gas in the system. Uh, that said, the oil and gas companies, which are profitable uh, and, and are producing a lot of cash, particularly post the Russia-Ukraine situation, well, they are amongst the small number of companies with the wherewithal financially to be able to invest in the new alternative energy sources and forms. So everybody's got to be at the table in getting to the promised land, so to speak. And I don't think it helps, you know, this narrative that seeks to demonize some actors in our economy and paint them as sinners and then identify saints. Because actually the saints, if you're like a pure play renewable company, you're not going to be able to move the needle at the moment in a way that a Shell or a BP might be able to give it, you know, if they make their investments and, and mm. change the way that they operate. So it's very much taking the perspective that, um, you know, if you like the the worst offenders as they, they might be painted actually offer the most opportunity for impact through through that structural change. And, yeah, I guess that is the argument against divestment in, in some of those major oil and gas companies is, you know, that they have, as they start that transition towards a more renewables energy mix, it's likely that over the next decade, they are going to become amongst the largest investors in that sector. And how investors and consumers then square off some of these evolutions is only going to get more challenging in in the next five years and 10 years. But the, the right corporate behaviors still have to be sponsored, even if that means accepting some of those shorter term trade-offs.
Okay, let's move the conversation forward. Um, how's the future looking for ESG? Um, it's already mainstream. Um, it's, we've seen incredible movement over the last decade or so. Um, but will it become integral to all investment strategies? Uh, James? Well, I think it's already integral to investment strategies for many of the reasons that we've we've covered today. Um, you know, that policy impulse just simply can't be ignored. The direction of structural change in society and also the benefits that are clear from integrating non-financial factors uh, alongside traditional investment techniques to try and understand competitive advantages and, and risk uh, in a in a new lens and a more enhanced lens is is clearly going to be beneficial to investors' outcomes. Um, I think when we reflect back on on twenty twenty two, you know, it, it probably was a torrid year for responsible in investment approaches as a whole, particularly those that excluded, um, you know, the energy and, and wider commodity sectors. Um, you know, the awful events in Ukraine there really serving as a, a major catalyst for a fossil fuels revival. Uh, as European economies in particular faced those energy security challenges unlike any we remember in recent memory. Um, and whilst you know some of those shorter term trends may persist in the near term, you know those challenges have also heightened uh, the need for long-term solutions. Uh, to things such as energy security. You know, it's going to heighten that shift towards renewable energy sources. Um, and it's certainly true, as, as we heard from Chucker, that the carbon emission goals of, of policy initiatives globally uh, still remain as, as centric as ever. And I think just as a, a long-term uh, reminder of why this type of analysis is, is so important in investment strategies, yes, it was painful last year as a responsible investor uh, not to hold exposure to certain energy or mining companies that benefited uh, in terms of higher uh, energy and, and commodities prices. But also, you know, those investors who ignored the ESG risks from, for example, Russian government securities also paid dearly, you know, as those securities were excluded from, from global investment universes in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but to be clear, James, ESG has never been a short-term get-rich type construct, right? Well, that's exactly true. It's always been about long-term value creation by focusing on managing risk and concentrating on businesses with stable, sustainable operating models. Its underpinning has been studies that point to long-term value of considering non-financial factors within investment analysis. And, and let's not forget what we're talking about here, structural factors that are going to shape society and the environment that we inhabit in the coming decades. You know, evolution has been a present feature of, of human society and the operating environment for governments and corporates is going to evolve really materially in, in the coming decades. And investors need to be prepared for that. And a holistic approach that is marrying non-financial factors with material non-financial considerations is really going to help investors manage those risks and find those opportunities as industries and economies change. Chukka, hmm. uh, how do you see the future for ESG as a theme? Are we, are we going to be sitting around the table having the same conversations in a decade's time? I think it will just, it will be BAU. It will be business as usual. And, and, and that's as it should be. And I think perhaps the way we regard ESG investing and some, some sustainable investing strategies now will probably be replaced by the impact investing space, which will be, you know, the, the kind of focus of innovation and being seen as slightly, you know, a niche sector. 
I think we'll look back at 2022. I actually, I mean, it will be painted as quite, a, as, as, as James said, a torrid year for ESG investing and sustainable finance. I actually think particularly for ESG investing, it's just going to be the year that it grew up and it matured. Mm. And it was subject to the scrutiny that comes with being a you know space where you've got what over seven trillion dollars worth of um, assets under management and where it became more regulated uh, and so I think it will be seen as an evolution and a maturing of this space um, and in that sense I think you could probably look back at 2022 being not wholly unconstructive but a, a kind of quite constructive period for ESG investing and sustainable finance more generally. Uh, Chukka, uh, as a final question for you, um, from a JP Morgan perspective, how are you helping to ensure commitments are met for structural change within that wider organisation? So we've made amongst the biggest commitments, if not the biggest commitments of any banking, you know, private banking institution in, in, in the world uh, on the Sustainable Development Goals, UN Sustainable Development Goals and climate with our $2.5 trillion target um, going from 2021 to 2030. Now, you could say it's easy to make big fancy commitments, but what about the delivery? Well, if we look at 2021, uh, we uh, achieved $285 billion worth of financing towards that goal with $106 billion going towards the climate part of it. Uh, we're still collating the figures for 2022, which due to market conditions, we don't expect to be quite the same. But nevertheless, I think you will see that we are making very good progress towards delivering on those very meaty commitments. And uh, I think that's something that we can be proud of as a group, but we're not complacent about at all. Brilliant. Gentlemen, um, I think we've covered many talking points in a short period of time. So thank you very much for taking the time uh, to join us on this podcast. Really Pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Pleasure you. to be. And thank you to all of our listeners. Remember, if you like what you hear, please do share and subscribe and feel free to contact us via the Nutmeg social media channels with any ideas or themes you'd like us to talk about on a future episode. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Topics discussed in this podcast are for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for financial advice. As with all investing, your capital is at risk. The value of your portfolio with Nutmeg can go down as well as up and you may get back less than you invest. Tax treatment depends on your individual circumstances and may be subject to change in the future. Projections are never a perfect predictor of future performance and are intended as an aid to decision making, not as a guarantee.